thanks to Kai Malt, local malt for local beer. Local malt for local beer. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. I hope I didn't come in too early there, Matt. <laughs> oh, no. Local a... malt for local beer. I like that. That's a nice tagline. It is a nice tagline. Um, yeah. So, but no, it's good to have the good folks at Cry Malt, great supporters of not just us, but of... Uh, Good beer, um, helping us make this thing possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to be back for this week, Matt, just in case you were wondering or you were about to ask me that. Because I just wondered whether, whether we'd um, completely alienated our support base after last week's rants so, and diatribes and leaps. So you want to go straight into Cards and Letters, Prof? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no. We, we can do it as a two-parter. No, we do it before and after. No, let, let's get into the news and... Because uh, people are probably waiting to get out there, do their Christmas shopping and uh, start choosing their Christmas beers and opening their Advent beer calendars and all that sort of stuff. So we probably should crack on. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, what's been happening for you this week, Prof? Uh, not a lot. I had a, um, a very nice beer this week that oh, – did it interest me? Did it intrigue me? Um, look, I'll get straight to it. It was the uh, Moondog Old Mate Pale Ale. Which I know has been out for a little while, uh, but I just I just hadn't sort of uh, hadn't come across it, so I thought I'll grab myself a six pack and I'll get into those. Um, and it's funny how I guess your your brand um, once it's I guess ingrained in your you know in your uh, that that bit of your personality that chooses beers, um, a brand sort of gives you expectations and all that sort of thing. And I'm not saying they didn't live up to them, but I think it's an interesting shift for Moondog. And the reason I say that is that uh, if you think of, you know, Henry's Girths and Ford and uh, Fjord and all of, all of those crazily named beers um, that really, I guess, put Moondog on the map, this is a long way away from that. And perhaps the Love Tap Double Lager was a, dare I say, a gateway into their old mate pale ale. Um, because it was a, a you know lager really well made, but it was still big and bold and all that sort of stuff. The Old Mate Pale Ale is a beautifully balanced, mellow, easy drinking, dare I say, um, really nice, cracking interpretation of an Australian style pale ale. But it's I guess arguably a fair way away from from the expectation of what a Moondog beer might be. Yeah, well, I've not tried it, but uh, I, I have heard people make mention, and you've seen some bit of a discussion on some of the websites about Moondog becoming a little bit more. Um, Don't say mainstream. Don't say mainstream. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> you, you know, well, they become a little let's, bit more. Let's let's not open up that whole can of whoop ass about you know, open the floodgates on Pandora's can of hornets about uh, you know, mainstream craft. Oh no, 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 nothing about that. But just you know. They're not the and hello to my good friends at Yenda. Go on. <laughs> they're, they're not they're as out there, and and that's in terms of price as well. You know, I hear that there's there's been a bit of seventeen ninety nine for this one, Matt. I yeah. at, at Uncle Dan's. Absolutely. So you know, to sort of get those sorts of things in there, and you know, are, are they finding? Maybe we need to get the Moondog boys on. We spoke. Oh, gee, we spoke to them a long time ago, I think. Prof. Yeah, yeah. I've actually got them on my list um, to to have a chat. So. Uh, I'll, I'll make contact and we'll get them on in the new year. Yeah, in the new but, year. But it's interesting. Do you get the impression that, like, is it, is it fair to say that they're they're bigger, bolder, out there, you know, crazy sort of beers, 
um, you know, Ogden Nash's Pashrash, those kind of beers um, generate heaps of interest and, and obviously, you know, um, keep the wheels turning, but are there not enough? But like, do, do the people, I guess, the, the more specific beer consumer, um, is that just not enough to pay the rent? And that, that's something that we would only, I guess, be speculating on. So we probably, you know, it would be a great chat to find out um, whether this is a change of direction or what's going on. Um, but uh, along the same line, Prof, uh, I was listening to another podcast uh, during the week, um, the Good Beer Hunting podcast, which I think comes out, it comes out of the UK. And I was yeah. speaking to Stu from Yeasty Boys and uh, mm. having a bit of a chat and in, in the just general discussion that they were talking about, both uh, Stu and I don't know the host of uh, Good, Will Hunt, uh, Good Beer Hunting's um, uh, podcast name, but they were both decrying, you know, so saying, you know, gee, I wish it, well, I had a craft lager and it was wonderful and I wish there were more of them because I'd love to sit down and not just have one or two really nice beers, but have three or four really nice drinking beers. Um, and yeah, so maybe th there is something. It was something that we discussed um, a couple of weeks ago and generated for us quite a bit of discussion in terms of emails. Um, where I made the point that people often do go on that journey through craft beer, through the bigger beers, and come back to more moderate ones. But it's something that I've been hearing you know, more and more, and that's just another example. You've got guys like uh, Yeasty Stew, who you know, has made some very big beers, coming back and talking about just good quality, well-made beers. Um, yeah, so, yep. But then again... And I think, too, part of, part of it, I think, is the, the, the craft market is... Uh, coming out of its, you know, troublesome adolescence, and I guess, and finding its its feet, and being a little bit more confident in itself um, as a community. And I think we're kind of saying, yeah, we maybe we don't need to blather on so much about what we're not. Um, we can now just kind of say, you know what, this is a you know band of brewers um, who all have a passion for their craft. Um, some of it. Uh, is is taken to an industrial scale, and others is very much still a you know a, a I guess a backyard operation proposition, but all of them want to make you know good quality beers that that uh, you know they can sell for slightly more than it costs them to make. Does that Pretty much, sense? yeah, yeah, no, it does. Yeah. But uh, uh, in, in other news, I guess a nice little segue on from that about you know talking about what we're not. Uh, Hottest one hundred went live yesterday. Now we're recording this on. Wednesday the 14th of December, so on Tuesday the 13th of December, Hottest 100 went live with the usual fanfares of, oh, it's just a popularity contest. Yeah, isn't it a popularity contest? Well, it's a popular vote, so yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, there's kind of a hint in the, in the name. Um, yeah, look, there's always, the only thing that I guess surprises me about some of the um, the the smart ass criticism is that it's come out before a vote's even been cast this time, whereas normally they wait until the results come out. Um, uh, and yeah, look, without you know, you know, you know, when you you point the finger, don't forget you got three more pointing back at you. Um, some of these Facebook groups are popularity contests, aren't they? In themselves. Well, it, well it, like isn't it, it, isn't it all about? Guess what beer I drank. Guess what beer I drank? You drink what it? does everyone think of this? I drink it before everyone else. Yeah. Hey, I've got this. Yeah, exactly. Look what I just got. Yeah. So um, and look, and, that, and that's downgrading, downplaying. So it could be because there are there are plenty of um, uh, voices out on the internet that uh, are moderate and um, 
and, con and, and considered responses to, to things and, and sharing of information and um, highlighting new venues and all that sort of stuff. But there's always somebody, I guess, who's who's got to then use it as their personal platform to, you know, shout louder. Yep. And and look, I do have to say, you know, Australian Brews News and Crafty Pint are the two, I guess, official media partners behind it. But that's just because we are um, bookends of the craft beer spectrum. You know, we, we are probably the, the, the two biggest voices in the Australian craft beer media landscape. And so we get the word out there. But in terms of us being organisers, us being invested in the actual thing, um, you know, we, we've had... Uh, or even uh, having any, any influence whatsoever. Or any, any influence at all, themselves. yeah. Um, so, so we've got no dog in the hunt other than trying to get people, you know, we, we think it's a great thing and uh, we, we want to support it. But we make nothing financially out of it or anything like that. So we're quite happy to, you know, see it criticised if, if there's a story in it. And but as a result of being involved in it, we also know how you know hard the team behind it, and it's, it's the Gabs guys now, or you know Steve and uh, Guy um, of the Tap House, how hard they work to really make it a meaningful, um, fair uh, poll. So you know, look, while while still we should say highlighting that it's all a bit of fun. That it's all a bit, and, and none of them take it. You know, they they take it very seriously in terms of doing it well but not seriously yeah. in, in terms of what it means. And, you know, God forbid if Russian hackers strike and Yender Hells becomes the number one craft beer this year, you know... You <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, look, just vote. Vote for your five favourite beers. Discuss the results. Um, don't tell us what... You don't have to tell everyone what you voted for. Let's just, you know... Well, you don't have to. You can't. Um, you, you you can give well reason you know things why or you know you can just sort of say I voted for X because it really rocks um, whatever you, you, you want to do um, but that that's all it is but just get out and vote because it is it it does provide the more people that vote the better snapshot it does provide for what the Australian drinking tastes are and we, spot on and yeah. it, it comes back a, a lot to what we've been saying you know to to our chat with um, Jamie uh, Cook last year last week um, where we. And to Luke the week before that. And, and to Luke the week before that. And uh, yeah, and whilst there are a lot of people who are still well into their journey for IPAs and those and sour beers and barrel aged beers and those sorts of things, it is still, um, you know, very much a golden ale, pale ale world. And if Stonewood yep. Pacific Ale gets up number one, or, you know, you know, look, I, I don't know, I'm fascinated to see who the new entrants are. Pirate Life with a bullet last year with a number of beers. You know, are we going to see someone like Bolter? Um, is Bolter big enough? They, they've made a bit of a splash in southeast Queensland. Have they made a big enough splash on a national stage to get you know, one or two of their beers in? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. The thing I love about it, Matt, is that it highlights just how much more there is to beer than just the liquid in the bottle. Um, it'll be interesting to see, for example, uh, the uh, the BOLTER Bolters from last year, how they go, you know, second year round. Um, it, it goes. It's a much, it's much about, um, and we've we've spoken in the past um, three years or so when we've done our live crosses, that the beers that do have national um, distribution obviously are going to attract more votes. It doesn't make them better beers. It makes them a more popular choice among a wide range of beer drinkers. And remember the uh, the very first, uh, you know, going back, a, it's got to be eight years now, I guess. Um, yeah, three hundred votes, and mostly it was. It was the tap house staff and, uh, and and whatever mates they could kind of you know rope into it, and it's pretty much doubled you know year on year. 
um, to and who knows how many we'll get this year. It is a great snapshot because it does it, it does show you you know what what beers are making an impact, and some of them are because of the um, not the hype around it, but the the good marketing um, as it, it linked with distribution and that sort of thing. So I, for one, am looking forward to it. And yeah, just like if, if just to take it the uh, national election um, analogy, if you are a one issue party running one candidate in one seat in the middle of uh, Western Australia, you're not going to win government because you just don't have the numbers. Exactly the same. Yeah. If you have yeah. a small little beer, if you make it into the Horse 100 and you've got a beer with local distribution, that actually says a lot about you know how how loved you are and how strong you are in your community. But yeah, you're just not registering on a national. Um, well, anyway, that's enough for the Hottest 100. Get out and vote. You can find the link on uh, our website. You can find the link on Crafty Pint and also over at uh, the, the, the Gab site. And uh, we've got plans for what we're going to do on uh, Australia Day for the countdown. Uh, we'll be doing something uh, probably live. We're just trying to work out exactly what. Um, yep. And if you, don't, if you can't vote on the Australian Brews News website, do what I did and just open your Facebook feed. And I think yesterday at about 5 o'clock, the first nine posts on my news feed were uh, shared um, here, here uh, ads for for the hottest one hundred. There you go. So oh, it's great to see. So you you won't find it hard, but just uh, brewsnews.com.au or Crafty Pint or Gab's website. Um, Proc, we might just cut to the chase. We've got a long chat with uh, Mike Bannenberg, Banners, um, uh, art director uh, for George Patterson Bates, lo- lover of beer labels and beer artwork, and uh, yeah, semi amateur beer historian. How about we? Uh, Go and have a chat, uh, uh, a podcast from the pub with Mike Bannenberg. Semi-retired advertising art director, um, still working uh, consistently at least 40, 50 hours a week. Um, Probably won't retire. Um, Been in advertising all my life. Um, uh, Married with children, you know, happily married. Been 40 plus years this year. Um, that's banners. But when we say advertising executive, we're not just talking no, about some not executive, who, art director, uh, art director, sorry, and an ad man. Yeah, yeah that's uh, ad man. Yeah. Mad man. Um, we're not just talking about any ads. We're talking about beer ads. Correct. You were the account director for CUB for almost no, three years. No, not right? account director. I worked as the the uh, brand. Uh, what would I call you? I was an art director on CUB for 29 years. So I did all the creative side. I helped out in the creative. I didn't write them, but sometimes I did. But I did all the creative visual parts of, of um, all their commercials for almost 30 years. And we've just been up in your office, and it is a treasure gold mine. It is just, <laughs> for anyone that has the vaguest passing interest in beer and beer history, it is just Aladdin's cave. Uh, did that, your interest in beer and collectibles and the, 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 the beauty of beer art come from your time It did. Director? I mean, one, one of the things you have to do as a creative, you have to interrogate the brand. And to interrogate the brand is, and especially with beer, because it's built on history. It's built on what people perceive the brand to be and how it develops as a brand. And and CUB was a very old brand, so you had to do a lot of um, investigation on where the brand came from and how it existed and why it existed, because if you didn't know that, you didn't know your customers. So in the end, um, that's where my interest came, and then at the same time, um, 
by, this, by that stage, Courage had been and gone, but there were new markets coming up. In 1983, they expanded into New South Wales, and they, they were already in Queensland, and then they started to buy in Western Australia. So we, we, they bought Tooths. Um, they had Queensland breweries in, in Queensland, and they were starting to develop not a parochial brand, but a national brand. And that was Foster's under Elliot. And that was very, very interesting times. Because it wasn't just Australia, it became a worldwide exercise from, from their advertising agency. So we were writing ads for America and England as well as Australia, especially on Foster's. And it, is that where your love of breweries and your... It's my love of the history of breweries, absolutely. That's where I got, fell in love with the idea of breweries are here forever and and uh, beer is, is a constant through everybody's lives. It's fantastic. And well, we, we were saying beforehand, I didn't know what element I wanted to actually talk about. So we just wanted to have a little bit of a chat generally and uh, see where it went. But I suspect that we're going to be uh, doing this uh, multiple times to pull out the various threads um, of it. Because straight away, you've, you've started talking about that amazing time in CB's history when John Elliott um, came it's in. Fosterizing the world. Fosterizing the world, but it was a, you know, a, a case study in business he was one of the first MBAs um, and had that new approach to breweries and took over uh, CUB and wanted to take Foster's to the world what was your what, what are your memories of, of that time were you an art director before and after I, well, I was an art director before that um, and my, my father was a commercial artist he'd been out here in Australia since um, after the first second world war and so I did have a grounding as a child of advertising. There was always advertising people around us, you know. The Mad Men, the 60s, 50s and 60s, <laughs> was always around our house. So How did you live on? <laughs> it was a fantastic life. I mean, some of the people were mad, absolutely mad. And, and actually, when I went into advertising, they were just as mad. Um, they were a lot of fun. They were very strange creatures, the advertising people in that era. I think they're a little bit different today and they and they have to be because the, the whole market's changed so but tell us a little bit about uh, what the art because that was one of the uh, most important periods for um, well actually that's probably a bit of an overstatement um, tell us about your, your, your memories because certainly the, the period that I remember from beer advertising I just got my beer uh, drinking licenses uh, Pete likes to say in the late 80s when uh, all of this was happening and uh, that the ads were big and only got bigger through that well, time? Well, you've got to understand the landscape of the advertising in those days. Um, we were getting budgets. Um, advertising agency was... Um, Sorry, I've just spilt the jug of... Uh, that's right, all over me. <laughs> Not quite. Um, the landscape in those days was that uh, with an advertising budget, you would book the media and you would do the ad. And... Let's say CUB came to, and the agency was George Patterson um, Australia. One of the, it was the biggest agency in Australia. And what would happen is, with their fifty million dollar budget, they would get the media exposure on TV. So there was only like Channel Nine, Channel Seven, and Channel Ten, and you'd book your media through that. And then they do, then there was a sub-level media, which is point of sale and radio and that was it and, and so we went with the brands we're doing big commercials every year and that would be your six months of commercials and then you'd revise that and redo the commercials and 
before that, the, the client, CUB, got all the advertising and all the artwork and everything for nothing. It was the media spend because we were making 17.5% on the media. And that changed in the late 80s, early 90s. But basically it was money, money thrown at advertising to the mass market. And you couldn't, even, you couldn't even judge how it went, but the sales went out the roof. So it must have worked. And then you had all these brands, they inherited, the, George Patson created the brands in 1968 when Courage came into Melbourne. And just remember, there was a parochial brand. Every state had its own parochial brand. CUB was in Melbourne. Um, in Sydney, it was Tooths and Reshes and Tuis. So there were two breweries there combined for the market. And in Queensland, it was uh, Castlemaine and uh, Queensland Breweries. In South Australia, it was uh, West End and um, Coopers. And, they, and in Tassie, it was Bogues and, and Cascade. And in Western Australia, it was um, Swan. And so it was reasonably easy to advertise just in Victoria. But as they, they expanded nationally, they started to want to create brands. And so you ended up with things like VB on tap, which I think was an absolute mistake. But uh, that's how they got into the market in, in, Queen, in New South Wales. When did they do that? 1983. It's interesting you say that it's a mistake because from 83 to 2003, um, over that 20 years, VB grew to be... The, 28% of the market. Yeah, well, one in four beers drunk in Australia yeah, was VB. Yeah. And it, it has gone down dramatically since then. Yeah. But why do you say it was a mistake when it was obviously such a success for two decades? Because it, it wasn't that type of beer. It was a take-home beer. Always was. Right? The beer across the tap in Victoria was Carlton, Carlton Ale, which, was, which in 1968 was turning Carlton Draft. It actually had to brand it in 1968, because if they didn't, they, they couldn't distinguish themselves. Because if you walked into a pub in 1967-68 and asked for a beer, you got the beer. It was Carlton Ale. That was it. Finish, and then you had to, had take-home beers like Melbourne Bitter um, and VB and Abbott's Lager, and then the other interesting thing was if you wanted to go up market, you got a crown. That was it. Special occasion. Special occasion. Beer. Even back then, because crown is something that I've got a particular interest in. But, uh, it, crown it didn't have that cachet. Well, it was created because of the style of bottle that was used early 1960s. They were created that fantastic bottle shape, which is the inverted um, uh, glass, Pilsner glass, basically. If you put a Pilsner glass next to it, it's, it's the inverted version of it. And the other special thing was that um, you actually had to open it with a opener, which made it an occasion. So, so, uh, so not, not a twist up? No. And I mean, that's all changed now, and the way they market it is changed entirely. But that gives you some idea of, of where the advertising was. And it, it, look, and CUB wasn't my only client. I did every other client you could think of. So it was just part of what I was doing. Um, and I got very interested in, in the brands, in the brands themselves. And then, of course, when they got tooths. Um, it must have been 83 or 85, it was around about that time, I can't even remember the dates now. Um, 
But once they went in there, they basically took out the whole brewery and took over and put their Victorian brands into it. This is what Elliot wanted to do. He wanted to, to fosterise the whole of Australia, and his whole, whole idea was to fosterise the world. Uh, his main brand was Foster's. Um, uh, was that chosen randomly? Or was there, it needed a push? No, I think Elliot just liked Foster's. Okay. It could have been anything, but it, it seemed to be the right fit because it was formula, you know, to me, it was a masterstroke because it was actually an international brand. It was started by Americans. Mm. Right? And it, it did, it had already been exported for quite a while into England and into Europe and into America, just toes in the water stuff in the 1960s. So he already had an established brand. He just realised he could expand it. And that's how his foray into, into world um, beer was, was started. But in doing so, he's killed the brand, really, because it, it is one of the brands that everyone thinks we drink. It had, had a little bit to do with his persona, yes. Um, because in the end, uh, when someone doesn't trust the person and it's tied in with a brand, the brand goes down with it. I think as a brand, I think the beer is fantastic. Foster's is actually a very nice beer. Mm. Always was. Um, so, and then you do the research and you find out where those brands existed and, and then you go back even further to the 1950s and find out that all the beers were, were actually one beer and they just changed the labels. Um, that's that's Reg, Reg Fogarty did that, and uh, I found that out from the brewers that they were just going along. And he said, said at this date, this time, Melbourne Bitter label goes on. The only thing they did do was they, uh, I knew on Crown Lager that they would go the best, they'd taste the lager, and if it was the really, really super brew, if it was at the top of the specs, they would well, they would make it into um, uh, Crown Lager, but. And Melbourne Bitter had a different formulation on the bitterness, so the amount of hops. Um, but essentially they were the same recipe, um, which I find quite interesting. The, the brewers were listening to this. No, the brewers, the brewers were interesting because they did know the difference. They did. They were some minor alterations to it, but it essentially Fogarty had this idea that well, the public won't know. Who cares, you know? And he wasn't wrong, by the way. He wasn't wrong. But the, the, the main ales that were people drunk in pubs was Carlton Ale, and that didn't change. That, honestly, it didn't change. When it comes to the, a basic marketing campaign, and I guess when we think of Foster's, we think of, you know, throwing a shrimp on the barbie, the, the Paul Hogan series of ads and that sort of thing. But in general, for your job, were you brought, uh, here's the beer, here's the name, create a thing for it, or did no, you come up with a concept? No, no, like, no, it, no it, it, it's entirely different. The way George Patz was very dis disciplined in the way they approached things. What we do is we, we would interrogate everything the client gave us. They'd give us a brief. This is what we want to do. This is what we want to achieve. And as we, in, this is who we think... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We, we, we don't go in... You would never go into the market blind um, and you just come up with any crazy idea. The whole idea was, you know, um, setting the tone of the brand and what the unique selling proposition of the brand. The USP was king on every brand that we ever did. Like, and I'll give you an example. Um, uh, VB is for hard-earned thirst. Yep. Now, that as a USP, which is reward for effort, that's the USP, 
And that line, you know, for a hardened thirst, you cannot fault that as a as a as a brand style ever. Think about it. You it's, it's you work, you do the lawn, you do anything, yeah. and you get a reward. And this is the beer for the reward. It was the best USP you could ever have in a beer. And it was originally for Villain uh, Magoltop. Yes, but that was done by the same the same agency. Right? Yeah, I remember there were a yeah. couple of stories that uh, came out that they were looking for the perfect beer ad yeah. for it. Yeah, I've got actually all the documentation on that if you want, a, a complete document on how that came about. I'd love to, I'd love yeah. to see that because it is one of those too. iconic... Uh, yeah, and it's very interesting, it has all the people's name. I think the art director, the, the, the writer who did that, he lives in Sydney, and he he wrote all of those, you know, for Hard and Thirst. Um, what you can get it here. I've got a milk and a cow. I need to, what what yeah. rhymes with cow? Well, I get it out. I get it out. Yeah. And and it's interesting to me. And I, I was sort of you, you become brand custodians over a long period of time, and you keep telling the client, don't change that premise because if you lose that premise, then you've lost your brand, right? And the, the difference is if you strip a label off off any beer and put it in front of someone, they're not going to tell you the difference between the beers, especially in those days. So it was really vital that people understood what they were drinking. And Melbourne Bitter was, you know, country. It was a country-fied, take-away type beer. It wasn't advertised a great deal. Abbott's Lager was the real diehards, because they, they were brought up by Abbott's And that was, you know, like your dad's dad's drink, right? Um, and that died a death as well, because it became pretty obvious that which brands they're going to make money out of. And we're talking big money, and serious money. I mean, in the end, you know, it's a $6 billion business in Australia. But it's an important business. I think uh, there's a whole lot of people in the craft beer world who want to say, I drink because I like the beer. That's right. Um, but of course, it's, they like the brewery or they like the idea of craft and they like the idea of independence as much as they, they like the actual beer. And, the, I'm always fascinated by the studies in the wine industry, for example, where they can measure the pleasures parts of your brain. They, they monitor those. Well, the, the brewers did the same. They, they, I, I went in seminars with all the major breweries at CB, and they were clever people. They were doing stuff that most people in the world weren't doing, right? They, they were inventing stuff to do with beer and how they produce beer that was absolutely at the sharp end of, of development in beer. And such, such as? Such as um, uh, hopping, they, the way they invented hops, a ring with pride of ring and also hop extract, right? They were doing in the stables at Carlton. That's that stuff, and it was all added, added on stuff, and, in, and as... Um, Scientists, they were absolutely at the forefront. Some brilliant, brilliant people, right? And they, they were telling me that they'd analysed, um, they did something on taste profiles of people. And it's an interesting thing, and it's my, my theory, and people probably say it's wrong, but basically, as an 18-year-old, you, you hate beer. It tastes terrible. Because bitterness, we're, we're reversed no, to bitterness. No, 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 it's not age. that. It's just oh, really? your taste buds aren't developed. Right? Your taste buds are at their peak at 28 years old. Really? Yes. Okay. So what happens is there's a big group of people at 18, 17, 16, 17, 18 as they're introduced to alcohol and, and taste. It's always sweet. Mm. Right? The sweeter the better. Uh, why do you think Corona works? Because it tastes like nothing. Mm. Right? But, but funnily, it's interesting you say that because there are a whole lot of um, uh, 
people who say that from a very early age, you know, poisons in nature are bitter. And so we have this inbuilt defence mechanism to avoid bitterness. Debatable. But essentially the science, it's this, this scientific uh, thing is at 28 your taste buds are at their peak and it's it, you, what you taste everything is the best. After that it's all downhill. I actually so, thought it was because your taste buds, by 30 your taste buds were jaded. No, no, it's the opposite. At about 20, 27, 28, past puberty all the rest of it, is when your taste buds go and it starts going downhill. And this is, and I could never understand it when I was about 18, 19, and, and I'm from a different era. Your rite of passage was your dad took you to the pub at 18 and got you pissed, right? <laughs> and you got, you developed a taste for the beer. But what happened was, there was a whole generation that didn't have that rite of passage anymore. Yeah. And it changed. And they, they started doing alcohol pops and they started doing ciders and all the rest of it because they're sweet. And, and what's happened is you'll find that uh, there's been an explosion in the way people love beer and go to all these different microbreweries because the taste profiles are so bold and, and adventurous and, and just get this great hit in the back of your head, right? When they're in their late 20s. Well, that's one of the things that we've been talking a lot about uh, with the, the, the generation split with craft beer and uh, yeah. particularly the interest that uh, young women have discovered in craft beer. When beer was just a little bit one-dimensional, it had that's bitterness right. and that's nothing right. else. That's right. There wasn't a lot of reason to drink it except for that cultural imperative no. of we're, drinking beer. We're, we're drinking a beautiful lager here, right? And it's so so balanced and, and nice to drink. This, this is one this of the, the, it's the Thornbury Lager yep. from Three Ravens. Uh, Pilsner from Three Pilsner. Ravens. Three Ravens. And it is absolutely beautiful and, I, and, and women would drink that. It's really quite a pleasant beer to drink. But that's because it's the, the, the bitterness. It is just it has yeah. such a wonderful bitterness but it has this malt profile that's right. that carries it. Right. I have to say that and this is going to be you know, a very good chance of being in my list and, of uh, and then, 100 beers because and then this is just beautiful. Absolutely. And the thing about it is, going back to the taste profile, I could never understand why people like whiskey, right? Because I reckon it was the most aw goddamn awful thing I've ever tasted in my life when I was in my 20s. And everybody says, you know, get, get, pissed, get pissed on this, you know? Tequila, whiskey, vodka, rum, the whole lot. You do experiment, right? Whiskey would drive me nuts. I hated it. Now I'm into my 60s. I absolutely love it. And the reason is, it gives a big bang at the back of my taste buds. <laughs> and I think that's exactly what happens. Your taste profiles change over the life of your, of, of your life. So I almost sort of see it as the CPR of the uh, taste buds. Correct. Part. You need something strong. But you know, a neat whiskey with a bit of ice absolutely will knock you out. And it's just my age. It has nothing to do with, you know, how bad it tastes, right? But it's just got a lot to do with your taste buds. It's interesting. And this is the sort of thing that CUB was developing. And they come to you and they tell you the profile of the people that's going to drink their beers. It's very interesting. So, back to beer advertising. What makes a good beer ad? Is it four blokes making a boat? Because um, Pete and I um, take a bit of a study in, uh, in, in advertising. And we, we've noticed that, for example, uh, Lion had 
four blokes, it was always four blokes, they were, I guess, meant to be approachable and that's none of them were too good looking or even the good looking bloke had a, you know, had a bit of Well, stubble. the rule was three blokes are mates, two blokes are poofters and one bloke is a loser. <laughs> or an alcoholic. Right. So why four blokes? Well, it's more than three, so okay. it's going to be five. So really popular blokes. Yeah. They're a game. But five's but, a mob or a game. But, so you've got to, you see, got to be under you five. see, we had a, a much more critical um, judgment on a beer ad, and it was sales. If it didn't have sales, it was a lousy ad. doesn't matter how good you thought it was. If it didn't have sales, there was no way that it was a good commercial. Let's so, say, and say, for example, like the, the Carlton Draft big ad. Yeah, the big ad. That was involved in that. So yes. everyone, everyone you speak to, non, non beer drinkers alike, yeah. Yeah, think love it that is. ad. It's and so that, memorable. And that, but did it, and did that, it sell Carlton Draft? Absolutely. It really sold its bum off. But the thing about it is, the, the, the real thing about that ad is that it was a culmination of a lot of prior work. If you have a look at all the ads prior to it, was developing into that. And also, it still had the values of what the beer's about, which is drinking. I mean, you take the pan off shot, and the guy is drinking a beer. Right? Yeah. So it, it worked, and and it was just a great way, a creative way of, of reinforcing what the beer's about. Do you see those ads that, that you've been personally responsible for as? I guess like your children, or do you hand them over to CUB and then when the next one comes along that perhaps is, is not up to it? We, we in the agency used to, used to be the brand champions, and so as you've got account service from the client, you've got to remember when I first worked on CUB, I'd go down and talk to the clients and they were in blue overalls at the brewery, at Carlton Brewery. So they were the brewers? No, no. They, they were part of the team of brewers. Out. They were part of the staff over there. They weren't um, what, what I call they office workers, down right? South Bank, close because the way the, they were the in the office opposite the Carlton Brewery, yeah. which was their development, and they had, you know, all their. Um, this is in Burberry Street? In Burberry Street, right? And at, over a period of time, their qualifications became greater than mine. But their knowledge of beer was less than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Quite Chinese interesting. Things, I think they call them. Uh, yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, they—they they have uh, a good account service. Would understand the brand. Uh, <laughs> I got myself into trouble one time when I got a new brand manager for VB, and he asked me, Michael, you've been around a while. What do you recommend I should do? And I said, Well, you're getting a big wage. What I would recommend you do is. Travel around Australia for nine or ten months and drink in every pub and talk to your customers before you come back. <laughs> I got into a lot of trouble <laughs> saying that. <laughs> he laughed, but I, he, under, he, he understood what I was trying to say. Get to know mm, your, your client, your customer, right? And if you didn't do that, and if you lived, you know, like the account service pays were getting into the hundreds, maybe two hundred thousand dollars. And I'm going, well, the sort of lifestyle they're living is nothing to do with the drinker that's in the local pub at, you know, narrow. Yep. It, it, it's really important to understand who, who the people you're talking to, especially you, in advertising. Do you need to drink the product you're selling? No, not necessarily. Yes, you should understand what the product is and, 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 and drink it, but you wouldn't drink it because, because it is your client and that's what you're advertising. 
you do have to believe in it. It's got to be a good product, whatever. Look, it's the old advertising story. You can do the best advertising in the world. If the product is shit, no one will buy it. No, never again. I mean, it was a bit like I had a client called Nissan, right? And they were the most goddamn visually awful cars. But we're mechanic. not talking about the Cedric, are we? No, we're talking, no, about, we're the talking about the Bluebird. <laughs> and we're also talking about Skyline. And, but seriously, as a car, mechanically, you couldn't fault them. They were the most, they were the best cars on the road. Well, the fact that the Nissan Straight Six went into the VL Commodore. Correct. A turbocharged. Yeah. Right? They were correct cars. And what I'm saying is. They just look like it, a, it, you know, when you get a kid to draw a picture of a car, they draw a Bluebird. <laughs> and and we, can't, we, 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 were, we were having a dilemma. We got to, we're against all these other clients. What are we going to say? You know? And the, the line we came up with is just wait till you drive it. Yeah. Right? So there was a truth in advertising. Correct. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, it's interrogating the brand. It was a, They were the most goddamn awful, ugly cars you've ever seen. Were you up front with Nissan when you came up with well, that? Yeah, absolutely. So your cars look but, terrible, but the thing is, work. The thing is, it, that particular, it was interesting. We we're digressing on beer, but it's really interesting because they had a design facility in Chicago, and out of that came the 300 ZX and, and a couple other beautiful looking cars. And within three years, Japan had fired them because because the the, the, um, the designers in Japan got their noses out of joint. Right? And what you've got to understand, the, the Japanese design for cars is all about face. What does the front of the car look at? Is it angry? Is it sad? Is it happy? It has nothing to do with design. It's about how it appears as face. It's really, really interesting. <laughs> and those cars in those days were ugliest <laughs> to our eyes. But to their eyes, it looked fantastic. It was what it was supposed to look like. So that was a cultural difference. It was really quite interesting. So in terms of beer advertising, were there any um, either beer concepts or, or, or marketing strategies that you had to kind of do the same thing with CUB and say, I, I think we're going in the wrong direction? Oh, well, you'd know. You'd research the pants off them. Right? You'd know straight up. Um, um, but what about when, well, it's, a, when it's a new brand? Say Empire Lager, for example. Well, it sort of came and went fairly quick. I don't know if you're involved personally with that. No, I wasn't. The, the one that I was involved when I, I did... Uh, the first... Uh, the real... So, so going back in history, um, Courage came in in 1968 and CUV had to react and all of a sudden they had to develop brands, which they got George Patterson to do. All the brands were developed by George Patterson. And this is what... This is what your brand name is going to be called, Carlton Draft, and this is what, and what segments they are going to sit in, and we can control it. And they absolutely blew courage out of the water. Um, Does that include like labelling and the livery? Everything, the everything. We did, we shape. did everything. Because Carlton Draft, you, and we're, we're sitting here at the Palace Hotel in South Melbourne, yeah. we should give a shout out because yeah. they've looked after us. Um, but the rondelle or the the, the, the decal that they've got in there is the old pale blue. Correct. We did all of that. Yes, that's so no, because that because it. Because in 1968 they had no decor. Yeah, zero. Yeah. It wasn't even marked on the kegs. You just <laughs> drank it. It's interesting. And um, so then the next big thing that happened to CUB, and it was a big wake-up call, was um, Tui's Red and Tui's Blue. Yep. That's the one that really they got so upset about that. They, and uh, from that they came to us and said we've got to develop something. And I did Foster Special Bitter, and I designed the label, and we did all that. 
So just just for because a lot of our listeners are uh, you know, under thirty, and, uh, yeah. this, this, this is essentially an episode of grumpy old men um, talking. But uh, just just uh, give them a little bit of the history of the Tui's uh, red and Tui's blue. Well, Tui's. Well, as you, because I remember it, but I actually as, as we've been told, uh, as I, I've been saying, um, all the beers were parochial, and CUB had gone up to New South Wales and interrupted their market by buying Tooths. So their brands up there was um, Tooths, uh, so Tooths Old, um, Reshes, and those sort of brands, and Tooth, yeah, KB, right, KB Lug, which was quite good beer actually, but. And what they did is they then disrupted that by putting in all the Victorian beers because they wanted to make a national brand. So Tui's got their nose out of joint about this and they decided they'd enter the Victorian market and they introduced Tui's Red and Tui's Blue. And it was totally unexpected. And they'd gone to all of these pubs who were dis- disenfranchised from CUB. They were pretty upset with the monopoly. And said, "Yeah, we'll put it on," and it was a huge success. The trouble is, to his red, you couldn't drink much of it. It wasn't a session beer. What was the style? It, it was a, a crystal malt type style beer. Okay. Right. Um, the and so what happened was we had to produce a beer to match it, and we invented Foster Special Bitter. And again, they threw money at it, a lot of money, and that worked, really worked. But it spurred them on. It, they realised they actually, actually produced something themselves that would counter the market and, and get people involved. Right? So they ended up doing, um, in Queensland, they did Carlton Mint. And uh, they introduced all of these brands. They tried out new brands all the time. And that, I was involved in a lot of those brands. You know, like Resh is Real. And they're trying to actually counter the markets in the markets they were in. Quite interesting. And then, you know, creating a, creating a brand from scratch is a whole different exercise. Right? And the interesting thing is a brand extensions like Carlton and then put a name to it, you're, you're piggybacking on the other style of beer. It, it's a dangerous exercise because um, you will note that uh, any sort of brand extensions is a sign that there's something wrong with the brand. Or, or although look at modern brewing, uh, for example, uh, Fat Yak. Um, yeah. Fat Yak has been so big that it's almost as if. Well, they know they're on the There's thing. a problem with Matilda Bay, but they're almost trying to say that. Well, Matilda Bay's finished. There's no way that that brand exists. It's it's now part of. It's in Hobart. It's not nowhere. <laughs> Find a place further than than Matilda Bay in Western Australia, <laughs> and you found it. Right? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, people will argue that that's not quite true because the brewers are down there and it's, it's a great... Well, those people are all within one building. Correct. Just down the road. Correct. But, but you know, it's all Hello, about, well, it's all about perception, you know. <laughs> if, the, if the public don't know that isn't hasn't happened, well, then they're buying a brand they think exists like 20, 20 30 years ago. Although, from what I hear, they're not actually buying the brand. But, but, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I don't want to turn it into a Matilda Bay thing, but look, looking at Fat Yak, because Fat Yak, the, the, the Yak Ales, as they've spun, yeah. Matilda May, uh, to, to follow you. Yeah, they developed it, yeah. Is a, is a brand that's in decline and is a problem, but Yak... But you've got to understand, it's the difference between a small boutique brewery and making it into a national brand. Mm-hmm. And they discovered a beer that everybody liked and they've made it into a national brand. Yep. 
with a boutique brewery style, they, people's perception is a boutique brewery. It's not, right? Because it's mass market. Um, what, what I'm saying is about brand extension is that you can, a lot of the times, they come to the conclusion it's, um, uh, the market is so saturated with their brand and they have you know, KPIs, they've got to achieve higher sales, higher sales. It's never going to happen, right? And so what they do is they do a brand extension and it'll actually cannibalise the existing brand. I've, I've heard that said about right? uh, Summer Bright Lager for Forest yeah, Gold. that's right. And, 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 you know, it's a balancing act and they, they just can't get, they can't understand they're far better off investing the money in their existing brand and keeping the brand alive. And perfect example if you do the history of, of VB, the, the way that went all over the place and ended up back to where it was from its roots, right? which was for a hard-earned thirst. But it went back to its roots out of desperation um, more than anything, because they, they, they tried and they were just trying to stick. Yeah, but they changed the colour of the label. That was the other thing that was, they went from to the white, bright, the happy, they went from bright, happy to dirge, right? To un unhappy, and it's, it's quite interesting. You put a beer in someone's hand, they want to own it. Really, quite interesting. So why didn't VB Original Ale work or last? Um, because the mentality was mass market and it was a niche. It was a beautiful beer, I mm. tell you. And it, I reckon it was. It, it was. It's a bit like Budweiser produced their old beers as a marketing exercise. But the, the market over there is so huge. If they got half a percent of sales, it's bigger than it's bigger than ours. But the thing is, they looked at it purely from a sales perspective, right? And they're going, it's not making much, and it's costing us this much. It still might make them a profit, but they'll dump it because they've got more. They want to get more on the line. Lion seems much more inclined to play in those marginal areas and... Well, they do because they, they leave the breweries they acquire alone. And I think Chuck Hahn has a lot to do with that. Right? Uh, Chuck has a, a huge influence on the beer. And he's clever. He's clever enough to understand that. The difference, the fine line between mass market and boutique market. So, to, to step into the modern... Uh, craft beer races, boutique beer, or what, what was the description that we, um, fancy pub beers was, was the um, headline that we saw? Oh, trendy, yeah, trendy, uh, trendy pub ales. Trendy pub ales, yes. <laughs> so to all the people that get upset about boutique beers, there was an even worse name uh, for them. Um, you've uh, curated a whole lot of the history of Matilda Bay and, uh, and, yeah. and the early I, I, I keep my tabs on everything that's going on. I know probably to the minute what new breweries coming on. And there are various ways of finding out, and one of the ones is I've got a great network of people that are, that are touching all of these places, and they, they're beer label hunters, they're can collectors, they're all sorts of people. But what you do is you actually get the information. So basically I'm doing the job I did when I was in advertising in the main, in the main brewery, but I'm doing it for myself. So how many breweries do you say there are in Australia at the moment? Um, I counted them last year and I published it in the, the uh, newsletter for the beer labels. It was 340. Now is that physical breweries or brand? No, or? no that, that is a, a moot point. You don't know. One of the things is if it's got a brewery name and they've registered the name, I regard it as a brewery. They're paying excise. They're, they're paying a, they're excise, a they're brewery, right? Mm -hmm. But how they do it, I mean, 
Uh, you only have to go to Hawkers to find out there's about eight different breweries being brewed at the one brewery, mm. right? So, is it debatable? Is it their own recipe or is it someone doing it for them? Well, it's always debatable and that's the research you've got to do. To find then, out. then again, there's a website that says that there's almost 500 breweries, and uh, but it counts, uh, for example, just in, in, my, in my patch, you've got Fortitude Brewing, yeah. And they've also got Noisy Minor, and then that's right. there's a thing called Bandit Brewers, which yeah. is something that they brew, and that's counted three times. Breweries. So, um, I, I've been trying to get a book up every year of every beer label in Australia, and it's been tough because no one wants to buy it for a start. But I still keep it up, and like he came this morning and dropped off all the November's labels that we've found so far, and we keep finding more and more and more and more. But, and, and I've got a can guy that's given me the cans so that I keep it and we also keep a record of the websites like I actually capture the websites because they change yeah. mm. and if you don't do that you really can't keep up with the history someone will come to you and say oh what happened three years ago at that brewery well I can tell you because you've got the websites I've got, I've got the information mm. yes. but, but that's a full time job and that's something that not I've, really I've, no. I've, not really, really. No. No, if you just spend half an hour a day, that's enough to do the job, right? I'm not, I'm not into faceless book and all the rest of it, so that doesn't occupy my time. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently some of the things found on, the, on some of those social media websites are not 100% accurate either. I hate to break that look, to you and look, our listeners. Look, we, that's why um, you never publish unless you can corroborate it with at least six different sources. Um, that same applies to history. You should absolutely nail it as much as you can. And if you can't, tell people you haven't. That's the important part. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, this is fact. Until another fact comes along. I mean, I had a, uh, I've got a very good friend who's in his, he's 93 now, Keith Deutscher. You might have known him. Yes. Um, he's, a, he's a great... The history of Australian breweries. That's right. Yes. And uh, he published that a long time ago. And he used to go to the libraries and use the, the old system of finding out information, which is different today, which is all internet-based and trove newspapers. He through microfiche. And yeah, he did microfiche. Slides. On, and he tried to put um, together every brewery in Australia in a book. And he did a successful job. And I put it like a stick in the sand. Someone had to put a stick in the sand you go through it now and there's mistakes all the way through it right? but at that particular time it was the bible right until someone else questioned it right? and more facts come out and then that will that will develop the whole time and i think it's important to people to not to criticize someone like Keith because he did a fantastic job and he actually set the standard of where it should go but you got to got to understand that it's that's a lot of the time it is incorrect because you didn't know all the facts. Um, someone told me the best line ever about history is, um, history is written by the winners, not the losers. Right? So you've got to understand there's always two sides to a story. It's like a divorce. Right? I heard on uh, Ale of a Time podcast, uh, um, Will Zebel um, was saying recently that, you know, like, if you're at a trivia night and they say, what year did uh, World War II start? 1939, unless you're in Czechoslovakia because it started in 1938. Well, what, what, what about the Spaniards? Yeah. Exactly, and, right. and, 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 and that's where you know it, it, it depends on the point of view that you're looking at. Correct. That's a fascinating Correct. point to make. Correct. 
And I mean, I mean, you go and you become a bit of a history buff if you're looking at history and you, you come to understand things happen all the time and they change. But history does repeat itself. I mean, we were talking before about the explosion of microbreweries, right? And if you go back in history to the 1850s and the gold rush, every town had a brewery because, like, to drink beer, you had to have fresh beer. And if you had a pub, you needed fresh beer. You couldn't transport it like we can today. So every town had a had a brewery. Whether it was a shack out the back of the hotel, which a lot of them were. And some of them made terrible beer, but it was fresh Well, well they beer. didn't understand about yeast, right? So they could never make the same beer twice because they just didn't understand what was going on. And that's why someone like um, Alfred Terry, which was the best brewer in Australia, he understood what he had to do to achieve consistent beer, and that was Carlton Ale. He was the best brewer in Australia, by far. Right? But then you look at history, and then, and so there was an explosion of, there was 285 breweries all around Australia, and Keith did a fantastic job of finding how many there are. And then it all petered down by the 1940s, down to one or two major breweries in each in each state because what happened was it actually happened with Foster's. Foster's brought in an ice they made a lager beer and they had an ice making machine and they would put pack the beer and ice in straw, label separate, and they send it up the railway line to Wangaratta and come off and 40 degree day the Wangaratta brewery couldn't even match it ice cold lager beer in, in the pubs. Budweiser is a very similar story. That's right. Exactly the same. And they killed off all the all the country breweries. And in the end, they and but major cities like Bendigo and Ballarat, in the end, CUB bought them out because they, they were just strongholds they couldn't get into. But they made an offer they couldn't refuse. And in the end, whole of Victoria was just CUB. There was hardly any other things. Um, even in Tasmania, Cascade and Bogues became the same company as Tasmanian breweries. Um, but they had a demarcation. North was Bogues and south was Cascade. It was Ross or Cam mm -hmm. um, Campbelltown or Ross, I think, was the, the yeah, cut off. That's right, it was cut off. North of. And did you find both beers yeah. in, in Ross or? No, no, no. 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 It, it might have been a dry area, <laughs> just to be safe. No, but I remember. Uh, and, um, both breweries sort of never made much of a, a thing about the merger at the time yeah. because they were so scared that their, brewers, their, their beer drinkers would go and just find something from yeah. the mainland and, or something and, else to and drink. My, my brewery history is more visual. I like the visual part of it, the people that standing in front of the breweries saying this is my brewery yep. and finding stuff like that and paperwork that gives you information about who they are and logos and all that sort of stuff. I'm very interested. Um, I've got a very good uh, mate Andrew Bailey who writes and we, we did a, a book together on the Carlton Brewery and, and, and Andrew Andrew, and awesome. Andrew is unbelievable the way he, he goes about writing his stuff and he actually writes a story it's not just a factual thing he actually writes a story from the point of view of the people that are involved he gets he was born a hundred years too late is the way I look at it and, and he's a fabulous fabulous things but he He's taken 35 years to write this stuff. Right? So, uh, between the two of you, let's let's say, and, and with your wealth of experience um, in terms of 
marketing, creating logos and, and brands and that sort of thing. Looking forward to the next 18 months, two years, three years, we're going to see more and more yep. small breweries pop yep. up. Yep. And those that have already been around two, three, four, five years, right. looking to kind of, I guess, be heard above the noise and, and, and really firmly establish themselves. What pointers or what rules do you think they should follow in terms of, like, how do you, 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 you said that telling a story is very important. How do they tell their story? Well, it's got to be about themselves. It's got to be, you know, it's based in reality of why I want to be this beer, how passionate I am. And look, so is that, is that a label story or is that, can that be transferred through your logo or your, your well, colours or the well, way? Well, all, all of that, it's got to be distinct about yourself and you've got to understand it's like like I the way I'd approach it is to find your unique you, your unique selling proposition USP find your USP it's a business plan it's basically a business plan you know first of all your product um, what you want to achieve and then what's your unique selling proposition and I think anything else comes out of that because if you write your unique selling proposition your labels will look like your unique. If you look at the label, that should be your unique selling proposition. Right? Um, and it might be that uh, you know it's going to be the Ryan Brewery because you know my forefathers came from Ireland, and this is going to be and and we love dark beers. It's going to be stout, you know. And you, you see what I mean? It's yeah. like, what is your unique selling proposition? So who do you think in the uh, modern? Uh, renaissance that we're seeing at craft breweries. Who do you think is doing it really well? Well, it's funny. Uh, the one I think is doing it exceptionally well are uh, there two breweries, Four Pines and Stone and Wood. Um, and if you have a look at Stone and Wood, they're all ex-CUB executives and brewers. So they understand the market. And for it. But frustrated yeah. ex-CUB. <laughs> well, yes, because of the... Um, the the largesse of, of the business, how big the business was, you're just a small minnow in a, in a large pond that they've created their own. And, that, and, I, and I know Jamie Cook, and I know what he tried to do. I mean, what you couldn't write a better story, you know? Uh, pay out from CUB, where do I want to live? Byron Bay, let's go, see you later. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better script, could you? You, you look at what's around that brewery and why they did it, you go, I take my hat off to them. They did a fantastic job. So even a national brand has to have that sense of place? Absolutely. They know who they are. They know who they are and what they are and what they're trying to achieve. Right? Little creatures, even though I regard that as probably mainstream now, the, the philosophy behind that business is so sound um, because they deliver mainstream beers. At, at, they deliver boutique beers that are mainstream. That's the way I see it. Um, I can't fault any of their beers, they're fantastic. Um, Four Pines, I regard as a little bit on the outside because they do experimental stuff. I love their stuff. I just, sorry about that, I'm more than um, I just love what they do. I think they're, they're fantastic. And, and I really, really get upset with old brands that have, have gone by the wayside and I, I, I respect what they are. What, the one that drives me, uh, I'm so sad about, is Kesco. Oh. Yeah. Right? To me, it is by far, and we, we have to put it up there as, as one of the best breweries in Australia. They still make great beers, but they've lost their way. What do you think went wrong? Was it trying to make it turn into a craft brewing no. business? or They had... It's, 
it's like a business that's run by one person who's very successful and makes it into a great business, and then they sell it, and someone comes in and doesn't understand what the business is. The people who've been running it um, have real no have no understanding of, of what that business is and why it's there, and it's all about history. That brewery is about history, and the potential of that brewery, to me, if they offered it to me for 30 million, I'd buy it tomorrow. But they have tried to focus on the history recently. Well, I would argue that they got the history wrong anyway, because they they tried to place the date at 1824 as opposed to 1832, um, from the time the land was bought as opposed to the time. But it's even before that. I mean, there's, there's people have written, there was a, I can't even remember his name now, he's written a thesis, and he's now a book you can buy, about the original owners and what happened prior to them opening up the brewery, what happened in England and all the rest of it. And what I'm saying is that the brewery has so much history and so much visual history. I've got some beautiful history about what it is. And, it, and I could have, I reckon, Probably of all the brands in Australia, Cascade Brewery could be the biggest international brand you'll ever look at, by far, out of Australia. Wow. If they did it right. Because, is it because it's quintessentially Tasmanian, so it's, correct. it's not even Australian? Correct. It's, it's yeah. clean air, clean it's so water, clean food, clean everything. Yeah. And the way the world's going, if you can harness that and send it worldwide and do it properly... It's it a bottle that sense of place. Right? But see, that in itself is, is one of the things that... I mean, Tasmania has done some brilliant marketing. Because you drive around Tasmania, and the, the place has been... <laughs> it, it's a huge logging coop, and it's got... Uh, polluted dead rivers and you've got Queenstown which they've, they've actually managed to make a tourist attraction out of the most polluted spot yes. in the country. Yeah, but, but Hobart isn't. Hobart. No, no, Hobart, Hobart isn't. Hobart isn't. And the rivulet that it comes from from Mount Wellington is perfect. It's, yep. it's down as further south as you can go. It, it's, it's, um, it's one of my passions, I reckon, that I'd like to see that brewery back up there again. Um, All right, so we're putting a call out for silent No, partners. no, okay. but between the three of us, I reckon we could purchase it. All right. I, I, I've said a number of times that I've... So you've got, you got 29 and a half. Between us, we might be able to scrounge. But it's interesting because it, it, I look at it from a marketing point of view. They walk, walked away from the clean, fresh, um, uh, you know... Waters of Tasmania. At the same time, the Bogues. No, oh, no, Bogues. No, what happened was they they went away and did this discotheque um, animal advertising. I just couldn't not believe it. And, it. and then Bogues turned around and said, "It's like VB going um, reward for effort. We don't need that anymore." And another brewery grabbed it. That's essentially what happened. Bogues took over the mantle of Wiz. What Cascade was essentially. They had advertised that for years and years and years. The clean waters of Tasmania and all that. And yet, anyone who's seen the South Esk River that runs behind the brewery yeah. at Bogues, yeah. you, you know they don't brew with that water. No, they don't. No, no, no. no. They're, they're brewing the same water that they flush the toilets with, which is one of the things that I always love like to say. There's nothing special about the water, it's the way that we feel about it that matters. Oh, it's the way you, you, you sell it, you know. Um, but, but by far, uh, Cascade has the greatest potential to be the best brewery in the world. Well, Pete was saying recently, Pete was down there last year and uh, sat in the brewery, and it is one of the most 
amazing I got a visual tour through it. it I got a tour through it yeah. with the, the, the tour and the visitor center. Oh, it, it is, and, 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 and it hasn't even tapped the potential of it. I mean, with Mona now operating in Hobart, they have an opportunity, and all they need is, is the management to say, leave them alone, allocate some money, this is the plan for the next 30 years, go away and do it. Right? I felt, last time I was down there, I just felt they'd kind of just given up. Well, they shouldn't. We, we can't compete, so yeah. we won't. Well, I'll buy it. Just yeah. kind of, I'll take it. I've said the same thing about Matilda Bay. If you're not going to use that brand, I'd love to take it out for six months. No, no, waste of time. Cascade's the one to really? buy. Really? You think Matilda Bay? Because you look at the buildings, you look at the history. You, you've got you've got you've got a bedrock that you can build on, mm. and it's purely from a marketing advertising point of view. Plus, if you bought Cascade, you'd get you'd get a lot of Matilda Bay. And, and one of one money. of the reason main reasons is it needs the brewery needs a huge update. Mm. Right? But that that can be done. That can be done. Right? Because I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't alter the brewery. I'd create one next door, mm -hmm. right? That's part of it, but it would be annexed away from it, and just create this historical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Create this historical precinct, and and you do, you know, the history is just phenomenal. When when you say that, I always think of uh, the scene in Shrek. For those who have seen Shrek, where there's the little uh, cottage out the front, and then the big factory out the back, where oh, all the potions and the magic really the apples. That's it, and it is. I mean, I mean, just it's just a fabulous setting in the most fabulous state in Australia, I reckon. It's, oh, it's the most visually stunning brewery oh, uh, in, in Australia. If not worse. That's right. That's right. So, looking again to the future, what are the biggest, uh, I guess, threats to this new wave of 350 odd craft brewers? Complacently, I think that, that, that they think that this is going to go on forever. It won't. There'll be consolidation in the future. It's all about it's a business. All of them are businesses, and they've got to operate like businesses, and actually have business plans that make that work. Right? Um, there are too many. Uh, there are a lot of people here who are passionate about their beer, and they'll produce. 60 different beers a year and all that sort of stuff and they can work as long as they have a customer who will buy them and I, I mean I love the stuff that's coming out of Red Duck some of the stuff there is I've tried most of their beers and they're always beautiful and they're weird but the way he goes about it is fantastic but he's the you know if you keep doing that you really got to know your market but it's interesting you say that because uh, coming from Brisbane that's one of the breweries that uh, I, I stopped drinking because I can only get it in Brisbane. I'll, I'll drink it down That's here. right. But he's not, he's not into that. He's not... He's, well, he, he, he's he was sending them up and I was just so disappointed. They weren't travelling. They, they weren't travelling. No, because they... It, well, beer, it's got to be drunk fresh, doesn't yeah. it? And, and, and that's a truism that we're still seeing. Some, some beers... Well, well my, my philosophy is if I go to Brisbane from Melbourne, what do I drink? What do you drink? 4X. Really? Still? No, if you go to the right pub and they're serving it all the time, it is the freshest beer. Yeah, I, I, I think Thomas might have moved on a little bit. No, what Green I'm Beacon. Green Beacon is a... No, I understand, I understand yeah. there's, there's choice, yeah. but if you're going to a town or a country and you go to the local pub, buy what's local, because it's fresh. A um, couple of quick questions. We're coming up on an hour. It's, uh, no. Um, 
over your career, what has been your favourite beer ad? What do you think, you know, for, for whatever reason, whether it was just visually stunning, whether it moved the most units, or what was your favourite? It's one I did myself. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it. Yeah. I was going to say. And the reason why is that I, I did a uh, cinema commercial for Crown Lager. And I wrote it, I actually wrote it for the client and it's a timeless ad and basically I said what the whole ad is is, is the pouring of a beer into a glass. In slow motion? In slow motion. Yeah. It was 90 seconds. Oh, I remember this one. Right? And the, the, the script that I wrote for it was, was four lines and I got it approved and I got allocated. The, the shoot cost $295,000 to shoot it two days in a studio in to, get, to get a bloke to pour a beer <laughs> to pour a beer and I, I'll give you some idea we had garbage um, bag, uh, bins and throwing it on an S-bend with camera a snorkel oh, camera yeah. in it to watch it wash around and then we did we, we merged them all together to create the crown lager of Bersman and that was that's my favourite commission because visually, to me, so it wasn't even a, a pouring a beer into a glass. It was all special effects to make it. Oh no, because well, it was coming up through. From we, the, from you, the we had the we had barrel after barrel. They they barrelled it for us, and we were pouring barrels into into garbage bins, and then actually throwing it on a on a clear S bin. We got the special camera that David Attenborough created to do the snails and all the bits and pieces yeah. with special snorkel lens. That was fabulous. A lot of fun. Oh, I got smelt of beer for a week. <laughs> but to me, you go and watch that ad, and um, it is, is it on still YouTube? time. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, link it, we'll link it to the show notes. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's, it's a 90-second commercial. Memorable. It is a fantastic commercial, and even the managing director, uh, Trevor O'Hoy, at the t no, Trevor O'Hoy, uh, Nuno Aquino at the time said it was the best ad he's ever had in his whole career, and he started at 14 years old. So, I was wrapped. <laughs> What was the worst? <laughs> oh, jeez. I think Empire and all of those were pretty bad. Though. Because, again, they didn't really... Sorry, Kels. <laughs> no, well, One of our regular listeners was, was involved in that. No, I, actually, I would have to say that I didn't work on, but I reckon the worst ad was the Cascade ones, where they were trying to get the younger man Series, it yeah. was a terrible the Tasmanian Tiger in a suit trying to be no no well they were trying to be in a discotheque yeah. trying to flog it it is it's appalling and I think they lost their way because the the, the unique selling proposition was completely wrong they'd lost their way so just I mean I guess while we're on the theme um, a couple of the the big ads the famous tongue ad which wasn't for CUP um, yep. what, what were your thoughts on that one um I think it worked because it was targeted at the right market. You just got to understand, you know, what were they trying to do and who were they trying to target? I think it worked. It got noticed. It was memorable. It's memorable. It got noticed. My, my philosophy also is, always ask the person after they've seen an ad, ask them what brand it was. You'll find most of them can't tell you. Right? They love the commercial. What's the product? Actually, and that's, that's a great um, segue. One of the criticisms I've had for beers like Pure Blonde and um, uh, Super Dry, um, the, the, the low-carb beers, was that they were quite successful ads in the markets that they operated in. But for example, the Han beer, it was uh, She Hates Your Guts. And I was talking about how this yeah, is a beer you want to lose weight. 
I've long argued that that was a beer that might have been, it may have been an ad that was fantastic for the beer, but it's been terrible for the beer category by essentially taking a poo in the pool um, of the rest of this. Well, didn't Canada Dry take that on as well? Canada Dry? Oh, well, well, they built on it. They built on it. They, 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 they built, built on that. But so you've essentially right. got a beer company to move one brand, destroying Correct. the wider brand of yeah. beer yeah, itself. Yeah, you'll often find that brand managers are in different categories and they don't really relate to each other. Mm. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, and, and the figures the figures that they find out on their beer sales will, will reflect that. They'll know. They'll know what's working and what's not. Because I mean, I'm not long, privy to the, the long history of, of trying low carb and diet ale, you know, DL, there was Diamond Draft, there was. Yes, it, it's but because. Weren't, weren't well, that well the, reason, the reason for that is that they saw a market in America, um, Bud Light. Yeah. And everybody thinks it's a light beer. No, it's not. It's a very dry. high alcohol beer where all the sugars have been, been brewed out of the. All the sugars have been converted to alcohol, which makes it tasteless beer, right? Because sugars is what gives you the taste. So, in the end, they knew there was such a big market in America, it's got to work in Australia. And it's, it took them years and years and years to understand how they've got to advertise them. Pure Blonde worked. Yeah. It finally worked. Right? They had just so many incarnations of the same brand until they got the formula right. And they did get it, I must admit. But you know, it's an old, old fogey who needs their taste buds hit. Tastes like nothing, just like Corona. Yeah. Yeah. But again, and, and they got that brand right. They got it right. But yes. I would argue that they accentuated or accelerated the decline of every other brand because people have moved to wine or other things that they think are better for them. Oh, no, I don't disagree with and, you. And, and also, also it was a reason because um, their, their market, which was the 18 plus year olds, had disappeared from the Rite of Passage. We talked about earlier in the Rite of Passage. They had disappeared because they weren't drinking beer. So how do we get them back again? And that was one of the reasons. I told them at the time they should do water, you know, CV water, because they had great water facilities and all that. They never took it on. They could have made a lot of money. Right? I, I just knew the market was changing so much that you had to actually do something different. And that was one of the ways they targeted the people because you want to get um, young men who want to be you know, physically right and all the time and, and their looks and all the rest of it, but you, you're targeting absolutely the right market. So I mean, one last question before we go, it's uh, over an hour now, and uh, I could keep chatting and uh, having beers, but is there one pernicious, persistent lie in, in in Australian brewing that needs to be dispelled? What, a myth? A myth, a lie, just something that's been created by advertising or just that persists that you would like to, you know, whether it's a historical untruth or a... a uh, oh, I think we're looking for shadows, really. Um, look, most, most advertising is a lie. Uh, because you just you heard it here, folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. In the end, let's like I said, if you put five beers with no labels on it, people have very hard to tell the difference. It's the story you create around it and how you, how you how people perceive what that's going to give them. And that, and it's also most of the drinkers want a sense of belonging too. They want to belong. So 
having that. This, this, this is, like is me. This is this beer. This is who I am. This is the beer I drink. And unless that perceptions change, and it can be changed, um, they're going to stay with that beer. They'll, they'll try all the other beers and then come back to their original beer. You know? it, was, it was interesting you saying that because yeah. last week we were speaking to Luke Robertson uh, from Mail of the Time, and we he uh, it, it is guaranteed to take to print whenever there's a portrayal of craft beer as being something for young urban uh, youngsters is, is, is the word that's often bandied about, the catch-all phrase. Um, I, I was at Stomping Ground last night and I had to send him a message because I also said you're never allowed to criticise about the way the craft beer drinkers are portrayed because everybody had moustaches and there were 22 year olds wearing Panama hats. And but, but don't, don't get me wrong, we are, you're still talking about a market where well, the the major breweries are still selling the bulk of the beers. The craft market's very small, mm. extremely small, and it comes down to, to price as well. I mean, a lot of people can't afford to buy a lot of beer, right? So price is so relevant to them. I mean, what, what was the avocado smash? Bernard Salt's avocado yes. smashed avocado yeah. um, a, a thing down here as well. Yeah. Oh, so, so yeah, what, absolutely. I, I, I think but, it could easily be. I mean, are, are, are we really talking to ourselves? Because a lot of these people who drink. CUB and Tui's and 4X. That's their beer, and that's and I take my hat off to them. They're enjoying the beer, and let them let them enjoy it. Yep. And it is the major part of the market. <laughs> so take my hat off to them. They do a great job, and they do. And it's great to chat. Thank you very much. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There we go, Prof. Um, that was a lovely chat. It was good to catch up. Good to sit down, and have a beer, and have a bit of a chat in a noisy uh, bar, drinking some very good beer. Yeah, it was. And to find out that not only did uh, Mick and I go share the same uh, secondary school, uh, but his folks grew up in the same street in Blackburn that um, my folks um, bought their first, or rented while a first house, first and only house was being built. So there you go. They say Brisbane's a small, small place. world. It is, it yeah. is. But you wouldn't want to paint it, as they say. But I'm pumped. Let's see, uh, Prof. Next week we're going to do our year in review show. That's pretty much just going to be you and I chatting. We might even see if uh, we, we haven't had too many responses from last week um, for for suggestions. Uh, pe- people are probably busy doing their Christmas shopping and that sort of thing. And maybe now that all that hustle and bustle's over, they'll get a chance to catch up on the last couple of podcasts and. Um, Send us in some suggestions on topics that tickle their fancy. Yeah, so listeners do that. Um, shoot in an email. Just tell us you know, what your interests uh, of the year, trends that you noticed, uh, things that you think might be big trends next year. Um, 
things that you've noticed emerging, things that have fallen off, things that you wish would uh, die. And you know, there's still a couple of classic ones for me, uh, mason jars, um, those glasses that are shaped like tin cans. Uh, there's a whole lot of things like, like that that I just wish would uh, disappear, but they haven't. <laughs> and while you're at it, get a haircut and a proper job. <laughs> and I did say it's, it's a couple of old blokes just crapping away. Yeah, and I did say, speak for yourself. Yeah, okay. Older. Okay, righto. Um, age, age is just a number, Matt. But please, yes, get in and uh, let us know what you think about a whole range of things. Um, uh, in, in our news, uh, let, let's see, we, we do have cards and letters. Uh, Lockie, give us some cards and letters music. I'm going to move up to the chaos, baby. I'm going to paint my mail. And can I say, last week's was a cracker. Uh, which one was that? The oh, it was kind of a you know almost had a kind of a vaudeville-y, um, uh Mate, that was my choice. Lucky was away. I, I I was lucky last week. So ah, uh, okay. Well, that explains the uh, the laziness on the beeps. What do you mean? No, I beeped. Yeah, I know, but all right. No, no I, just thought, I, I just thought I, I thought we I thought there was an opportunity to do better. Okay. I thought we get a particular. Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Don't fight. Don't fight in front of the kids. Yes, right. No worries. Um, let me see. Uh, now we've got uh, iTunes. We do have a uh, comment left. Uh, Chris Domagala, um, a, a good friend of the show, regular uh, correspondent or regular listener, long-term listener, um, and also featured as the home brewer in Foth uh, magazine last month. So uh, yeah, Melbourne yeah. listeners or people who have access to Foth, go and uh, find out a little bit more about Chris. Um, gave us five stars, very generous. Actually, Chris is also an executive producer of the show, I have to say. Um, Chris left a message, asked some tough questions, an excellent, an excellent insight into the inner workings of the Australian beer and brewing industry, featuring interviews from the very smallest of players right up to the giants. If you'll allow me to mix the metaphors, never backwards and coming forward to raise questions about whether the elephant in the room has any clothes on. There's one for you, Prof. Uh, it has been entertaining to hear Matt and Pete develop the banter and interviewing style over the years, and I always look forward to the little Easter eggs of behind-the-scenes audio left at the end of each of the closing music. Uh, keep Which up Matt good... left out last week. Sorry, Chris. It was a cracker too. Yeah, no, when I listened back to it, it actually wasn't. Uh, so, okay. Sorry about that. But, uh, I normally, you'd let the listeners decide, but that's all right. Okay. <laughs> all right. Okay, you want to take over the editing, do you, Prof? Yes, silence, mic drop. Just lost you there, Matt. <laughs> Come on, just get on with it. Okay, Thanks, so, yeah, so, so thank you, Chris. So, Liz, Liz you, you two can leave a, um, a card or a letter. You've got our email address, iTunes. Help other people find us. Um, you can also become a producer uh, or an executive producer or just a, a donor um, to help cover the cost of the mics that Prof drops um, and needs to be repaired. Um, Prof, what do you got on this week? Anything interesting or anything you want to say before we uh, head out? No, all good. See you next week. And we're out.